I was reading through Isaiah 63 and 64. And we're going to take just a couple minutes in the, in the Word if we can. Isaiah 63, we're going to start at verse 15. It says, Please, Lord, look down from your holy and glorious home in the heavens and see what's going on. I have the CEV version here. Chris, I don't know which one. I mean, whatever that is, I'm not sure. I, I got like multiple versions on my electronic versions. I just kind of compare them and read them through and like the one, pick the one I like. So it might be worded differently than your, uh, than your Bible. Um, it says, look down from your holy and glorious home in the heavens and see what's going on. Have you lost interest? Where is your power? Show that you care about us and have mercy. Our ancestors, Abraham and Jacob, have both rejected us. But you are still our father. You have been our protector since ancient times. Why did you make us turn away from you, O Lord? Why did you make us want to disobey you? Please change your mind. We are your servants, your very own people. For a little while your temple belonged to us, but now our enemies have torn it down. And we act as though as if you have never ruled us or called us to be your people. I'm going to pause there. That's the end of that chapter. Um, and I want to just take a look at this quick. Isaiah's writing here, uh, and you know, he, he had a lot of prophetic sense about him, and a lot of times we look at end times prophecies, and there's a couple in Isaiah that pertain to what things that could be coming. Um, I mean, Isaiah was writing at this time period uh, during the uh, captivity period, and Israel was under captivity from Babylon, that Babylon came in, swept through Israel, and took them captive, and that's what they were writing here when they're saying, you know, that we, we were in the temple for a while, but now our enemies have torn it down. So Babylon came through, and they tore the temple down, and they made Israel slaves, and this was a, a, a um, cry and a plea from Isaiah uh, with the, from the Lord. And you can kind of read into that when he says, Please, O Lord, look down <laughs> from your holy place. Look down from your glorious home in heavens and see our plight. Um, and as I, Isaiah writes these things, the Lord looks down to see them. And, and they long for a display of his power. They long for a display of his zeal and his strength and his compassion. And they're saying, you know, would you come down? Would you show us that you care about us? Would you show us your mercy? Uh, the people, I think, are wondering why. You know, are asking these questions of why your, your, your yearnings, it says this word yearnings, and some things it talks about uh, that he literally has, at, where's Lauren? That he literally has agitation in his inward parts. <laughs> That's I mean, there's a translation that talks about the, his bowels. <laughs> and how, you know, that's what Lord was experiencing, right? Lord, irritation in the inward parts. <laughs> it's no fun to have irritation in the inward parts. <laughs> but they're saying, you know, do you not have any care inside of us, inside of you for us any longer? I mean, it sounded like this kind of a desperate place that they were at, isn't it? And they're really kind of almost... At this place, they're having a pity party in a sense. God, where, why have you forsaken us? Why have you called us to do this? Why have you let us walk away from you? And he says, he wanted to know, why are you withholding things from you that, that even though their ancestors may even have turned away from them, that God was still their, their father? And so in this exile, and they were in exile for 700 years, they had centuries of this time frame when they were just wondering, where is God? You know, why are we in this plight? In a state of despair, in a state of doubt, the prophet here is pleading with God. So Isaiah takes the prayer and he beseeches God to look down, have compassion, and to acknowledge them and come and save them. And he says, where is your strength? 
And I believe the prophet is speaking words from his heart. I mean, I think he's crying out. You know, those aren't just, aren't just petitions he's making. They're, they're the cry of his inward being that he's, he's crying out to them. And I think that these verses here are intended to be a setup for what comes up into verse in Isaiah 64. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. The state of Israel at this point and the thoughts and the emotions expressed by them, I think, are kind of where we're at. Aren't we? I, I, I just read a, another social media poll. I, mean, I, I read those every so often. That said that most Americans, I don't remember what the percentage was, but a high percentage of Americans believe that these are the worst days in America. And we're in the darkest period of American history right now. They're saying that a, ma a majority of the American people believe that right now. So I think <laughs> maybe even some people in the church believe that this is the worst time period in the history of our nation. Maybe it is. I, I don't know. I don't know how it was. You know, we can kind of sanitize history sometimes when we go back and look back and remember things differently. But maybe this is a period where we are in this place, both inside and outside of the church, where there's despair in the nation that, and the church is asking God where he is and have, have you lost interest in us, God? I mean, there was, we had kind of this great emotional high in 2016 when the election came around. And, you know, a lot of Christians were pretty excited that the person that they liked the most got elected. And there was kind of this enjoyment and enthusiasm. But, yeah, I think there's still an undercurrent of a lot of people saying, God, where are you? You know? Now we're, it seems like every couple months or every weeks, like something new comes up. Now they're talking about the me again thing. And they see all these allegations of sexual assault and rape and these things coming out from Hollywood producers and, you know, and actors and all this stuff. I mean, it's no surprise, is it, <laughs> that that kind of stuff is coming out? I mean, I thought about this. And some people were complaining about all these kind of things. That, and I said, well, you know, I saw several stories that memorialized Hugh Hefner's death. They called him a hero. I said... If that's going to be your thought process, that Hugh Hefner is a hero, why are you then surprised that the man who brought all this pornography to the country and made it mainstream, and then you're surprised that we have these things going on? Why are you surprised by that? But, so this seems like there's all this stuff going on. But I want to focus on Isaiah 64 today because something happens between verse 19 of 63 and verse 1 of 64. And there's no record of what takes place? There's no record of what's going on in the period. You know, I don't know how far apart he wrote these books. You know, we read these things and you think, well, he just wrote like the next day or, you know, he kept the same sentence structure going and all that stuff. It could have been a period of a couple of weeks, a couple of months, but, but something shifts. Something changes, a shift in the people and the cry of Isaiah between Isaiah 63 and 64. In Isaiah 63, like I said, look, if you look at the wording, you see a people who view kind of God far off. He's sitting up on the throne. He's in his, his glorious home. And they have hearts and they plead and they cry to him, but they, they seem kind of empty and hopeless and without you know, any real thought that anything's going to really take place. They're not really asking anything of God other than to look down upon us. God looked down upon us and why? Is how it goes on. And sometimes they even seem to be accusing him and saying, why do you let us do this? And why did you do this? And why did you do that? But at the beginning of 64, it changed. Isaiah prays in Isaiah 63 that God would look down from heaven. But in Isaiah 64, at the beginning of their, their hearts now seem more focused, change, there's a change there, and they're a little bit more hopeful. 
And instead of accusing God, they're going to start asking and pleading with him to take action on their part. And they bring out some specific things. So it says now the prayer changes. They pray that he would now come down and deliver them. Okay, what I'm trying to get you to see is that in Isaiah 63, they say, God, look down. And in 64, they say, God, come down. <laughs> There's suddenly more of a plea there to God, come and meet with us. God, come down here to us. Their desire is that God would come down and manifest himself both to them and for them. So they're saying, God, will you come down and will you fight for us now? Can you see it? We're going to read the verses here in just a second. You'll see the difference. So here the prayer is in Isaiah 64, verses 1 to 3, I'm going to read here. It says, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, <clears throat> that the nations may tremble at your presence when you did awesome things for which we did not look. You came down. The mountains shook at your presence. So see, look at the, can, you, can you hear the difference in the tone of how this is written? There's a completely different heart to the writing between, <clears throat> Lord, look down. Why did you let us do this stuff? And then there's, God, come down. Make yourself known. Show yourself. And I like the, you know, the, the visual picture that he gives to this. is He, he wants him to rend the heaven, like tear the barrier between us. And come on down. Whatever's between us, God, open it up. Tear it open. Rip it open. And come down. He says that the mountains might shake at your presence. As the fire burns the brushwood and as fire causes the water to boil. I've told the story several times before, but there are people who I haven't heard this. Uh, a number of years ago, when I worked at the Duluth News Tribune, this would have been in the late 80s, uh, there were brush fires in Cloquet, south of Cloquet. And so they brought in these hot shots from Oregon that came in to help them fight these brush fires. <laughs> we, so we went and we did a story, we interviewed these hot shots, you know, these are the firefighters that jump out of the airplanes, and there's a, they're the frontline guys. And one of the guys we interviewed was quite a character, you know, kind of a typical California guy with the gold, you know, the blonde hair and the locks and the whole thing. And he got the call to come to Cloquet from Oregon. So he drove down from Oregon to California. That's where they based on him. And so he drove down the coastal highway in a Jeep with no top on it and no windshield wipers that worked in a rainstorm. Wow. He said, so he said he was driving down the highway and he had a, had a coat hanger on the, wire, on the wipers. And he's driving down the highway going like this. <laughs> with the wipers on a, on a coat hanger. That's how these kind of guys are. This is just, this guy's lifestyle, you know. It's just, he just lives for this kind of stuff. And I, so we asked him, I said, well, what's the difference between you guys, you know, these hotshot guys, and these guys here that are still, they still have the same yellow shirts on, you know. So what's the difference between you guys and those guys? He says, well, he says, when the fire comes up to it, we run after it, they run away from it. And then we, we got called out, and it was a call, it was a fire thing, I got, we got called out in the middle of this thing. And so I'm out here to take pictures of this brush fire and then fighting this brush fire. So I'm going to stick by these guys, you know, because that's what we're trying to get pictures of them. And, it, and it's burning all around us. I mean, it's not just, I mean, there's brush all around, and they bring in this helicopter to come dump little water on top of this thing. And so I stuck by the guy with the yellow shirt and the, and the walkie-talkie on his chest. And his job 
is a pretty simple job. Basically, as he runs out there, gets on the walkie-talkie, and says, drop it. And they drop it right on top of him. That's where he wants the water, right where he's standing. So he tells him, you drop it, and then he runs away, and it's like, whoosh, this water comes floating down on top of everything. That's his job. And he's right, I mean, he is right on top of this stuff. I mean, it's not like he's 100 yards away from this stuff. He's right in the middle of this. And it's, it's roaring all around. You know, there's this, it's, it's crazy to be inside of a fire like that. I mean, there's really, it's pretty, but I know I trust these guys, and so I was trust, trusting my life with these guys that they knew what they were doing. And they, you know, they got it knocked down. But that's what this picture is. You say, God, would you come down like this as the fire burns this brushwood? Would you come down in that kind of power and that kind of movement? So we see that this shift aligns itself, and God ultimately hears this cry, and he comes down, and it causes a movement on God's part. And this shift and this hunger and this desperation brings this, this movement upon God's part. I think that the, what God is looking for in the church, and I, man, this was, you guys have heard these things probably too many times over and over for me, but he's looking for hungry hearts. He's looking for people that want him, that are just desperate for him. You know, we can talk about programs and we can talk about doing stuff and we can talk about all kinds of different ways of governments and church. And he wants people that are hungry for him, that just desperately want to seek him. You know, in our, in our existence, when small groups of people band together and cry, I believe that God comes down. And I want to make an encouragement to you today and I want to talk about a real quick testimony of our existence here today <laughs> in this building and many of the places that are in town today from Hermantown to you know, Vineyard to Anchor Point to Rock Hill to all these churches in town they all come back to one particular moment in time one particular moment in history I gotta go back. They come from this house right here. This is a house in Los Angeles. This is called the Bonnie Bray House. It's still there in existence today. It was there at the turn of the century in the 1900s. The Bonnie Bray House in Los Angeles, I'm gonna read a little bit of this if, you, if it's okay with you. The Bonnie Bray House in Los Angeles is the place where the catalytic fires for the Azusa Street Revival was first ignited. In the early meetings at the Asbury House on Bonnie Bray, there were 15 people, including children, at this house. There's 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. Lord's missing 26. We have 10 more, 11 more people here than they had there. In that house, 15 people gathered together. It says, even though William J. Seymour had not yet even received the evidence of speaking in tongues, he continued to teach about it, even though he'd never experienced it. It's an interesting process of that. He never knew, he knew about it, but he'd never experienced it. And on April 9th, 1906, just before leaving a prayer meeting, Edward Seymour's friend, Edward Lee, began to speak in tongues after he laid hands on him and prayed for him. And after this, Lee, Seymour, and others walked a couple of blocks to the Asbury home on Bonnie B. Bray Street and began to pray. Then a handful of African-American saints gathered together because they wanted to encounter God in a greater measure. They had a song, a few prayers, several testimonies were released. Seymour shared the testimony of how Lee spoke in tongues 
less than two hours before when he began to preach from Acts chapter 2, verses 4. And something happened on April 9th of 1906. They had all been waiting and longing for this, and God crashed into the meeting like never before, and someone started to speak in tongues. Several others got baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues as well. Ruth Asbury's cousin, Jenny Evans Moore, who lived across the street, was resting on a stool when suddenly she fell to the ground and began to speak in tongues. She's known as the first woman in Los Angeles to speak in tongues in 1906. When the word got out of the unusual expression of the Holy Spirit were occurring in the small house church, crowds began to flock to the residents, eventually forcing the group to another location. The church found an available building, an old 4,800-square-foot warehouse at 312 Azusa Street for $8 a month. This building is 5,200 square feet, so it's about 400 square feet bigger than the building they had. So it was a two-story building, and it was kind of a livery stable on the main floor, and they had rooms on the upper floor. By the next month, services contained a minimum of 300 people and as many as 1,500. Attendees were radically and economically diverse. People came from many different Christian denominations. There were Baptists, Quakers, Presbyterians, Methodists, all those participated. The gathering at Azusa Street were unlike any other church service. There was no instruments, no choir, and no offerings taken. To read in the newspapers in 1906, Uh, one would have wondered about all the excitement in this old building on Azusa Street. This is the front page of the Los Angeles Daily Times, which is still in existence today. There's a front page story. It says, Weird Babble of Tongues. <laughs> I'm on the front page of the paper. Can you imagine much of that happening today? We don't often get much front page news on there, do we? According to the Times, this bizarre new religious sect had started with people breathing strange utterances and mouthing a creed which it would seem no mortal could understand. Furthermore, devotees of the weird doctrine, doctrinal practice, the most fanatical rites, preached the wildest theories, and worked themselves into a state of mad excitement. If that didn't grab the reader's attention, the article continues by saying, colored people and a sprinkling of whites composed the congregation, and night is made hideous in the neighborhood by the howlings of the worshipers, who spent hours swaying back and forth in a nerve-wracking attitude of prayer and application, supplication. To top it all off, they claim to have received this, quote, gift of tongues, and what's more, they, quote, comprehend the battle. It says between 300 and 350 people could get inside the whitewashed 40 by 60 frame structure. This room is 40 by 60. So they're in a, basically this size room. They crammed 350 people into this size room. Wow. We have 26. You guys are all nice and comfortable, right? <laughs> Let's throw another 300 people on top of you and see how we all think. <laughs> 350 people, it says. While many were forced to stand outside. Church services were held on the first floor where the benches were placed in a rectangular pattern. I think they went, they went out like that. Uh, some of the benches were simply planks on top of empty nail kegs. There was no platform, no pulpit at the beginning of the revival. Nonetheless, for the spiritually hungry who came, the very atmosphere of heaven had descended, according to one. Doesn't that sound familiar? Rend the heavens and come down. I mean, that's what God did. He rended the heavens and came down to Azusa Street. That's, that's how I view it, how I read it anyway. Although several people could be considered leaders, the best known was the unassuming William J. Seymour. Frank Bartleman, an early participant, recalled that Brother Seymour, here's my visual aid for you today, paying attention, 
that Brother Seymour generally sat behind two empty shoe boxes. I, I, this is kind of how I picture it, because it's really not a picture of this. Two empty shoe boxes, one on top of the other. It said he usually kept his head inside of the top one during the prayer meeting. There's no pride. He didn't actually most of the time preach. He just sat near and he just prayed into this top box. And there's no microphones, of course. And there's 350 people. There's a lot of noise in the Babel and all that stuff. But it says, in that old building with the low rafters and bare floors, God took strong men and women to pieces and put them back together again for his glory. That was the simple thing. He sat in the middle of the room with his head inside the box and he prayed. And God rendered the heavens and came down. I think sometimes we get discouraged because we don't often see things going on, things happening. But God wants people with just a 15 people. <laughs> the 15 grew to 350. The 350 grew to 1,500. And from that 1,500, take a look at this. Well, this is kind of a weird chart, maybe kind of hard to see. But out of 15 people, and you can see that point right there, it says 1914, which is five years after that took place. Excuse me, it was 1906. 1914, the Assemblies of God formed from that Azusa Street Revival. These are the churches across here that were influential in this phase of this happening, but this dropped right here in 1914, and from that came the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, Pentecostal Church of America, the Pentecostal Church United, United Pentecostal Church, the Foursquare Church, Open Bible Stands Church, and from that has come the Charismatic Movement, the Vineyard, Calvary Temple, uh, <laughs> almost every evangelical Pentecostal group owes its roots to Bonnie Bray mission. These are the key things that came out of the Azusa Street Revival. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the finished work of Christ, the latter rain. Maybe you've heard some of these terms. Some of you might have heard some of these before. We've read articles. The latter rain, spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy, divine healing, visions. The key names that came out of this, William Brannon, David Youngie Cho, Benny Hinn, Rex Humbard, Catherine Kuhlman, Harrison Mason, Amy Semple McPherson, Oral Roberts, Smith Wigglesworth, Pat Robertson, Out of this, the denominations came the Apostolic Church, the Assemblies of God, the Church of God in Christ, Foursquare, the Charismatic Movement, the Evangelical Movement, the Pentecostal Movement. These things all have their roots and chased everything back to just prior to that 1914, to that mark. All come back to Bonnie Bray Mission, 15 people. 15 people. There are literally hundreds of millions of people believing in a God who came through that house. Because there was 1,500 people who sat down and said, God, rend the heavens and come down. These are people that have revival thinking in their head. And they're revival thinking that says, we want God in our midst. <coughs> Excuse me. 
I read a recent definition of revival, and I liked it when I read it, so I wanted to read it to you. It says, here's a definition of what happens in a revival encounters. It says, you have an encounter with God. Before the encounter, you thought everything was great, and it's not. <laughs> then you discover there is a depth that you need to plunge into that at your present moment you're not at. An interesting definition of what revival is. It says, before the encounter, you thought everything was great, but it's not. Then you discover a depth you need to plunge into that at present moment you're not at. Here's another one I read too. It says, guy says, this is kind of definitional of his revival, his encounter with God. He says, I thought I was saved and doing good. Then I had an encounter with Jesus and realized I was half backslidden and Jesus woke me up. Amen. Revival. Amen. One of the things that comes from this is that you get so full of the presence of Jesus that it just, he spills out of you spills out over you, that everywhere you go, you're spilling a little bit of Jesus. <laughs> no matter where you're at, whatever you're doing, you're spilling a little bit of Jesus. You're leaving a little bit of Jesus behind everywhere you step, everywhere you touch. It's like leaving the DNA of God every place you are. <laughs> every place you go. And crazy things can start to happen. Something like what happened at Azusa Street. These kind of things can break loose. There can be people that are hungry for that kind of thing. So I just have five things, five points I want to quickly make about how we can foster this, particularly in the church, I think, how we can help this, help this to happen. But when this happens, I believe it happens through a church that's marked by hunger. And I just expressed that to you. That these people were hungry. There was 50 hungry people saying, rent the heavens and come down. We have a spiritual hunger. Revival begins with hunger, and revival brings in a greater awareness of hunger. I think there was just this... this Marked hunger. I mean, was William Seymour had one glass eye and had never experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but he just knew he needed to, wanted to have it. He had to have it. And he kept preaching it until it took place. And it changed the world, really. The second thing is a church that's presence-driven. The church of Jesus needs to be driven with a place that hungers for the presence of Jesus. Amen. To be here. That God, that you would come down. Because Jesus... His presence brings with it power, and it brings with it a touch of the Savior, the Savior and the Creator of the world who comes down and meets with us. And instead we say, God, look down. We say, God, rend the heavens and come down here. We want you in the midst of it. I think all the great moves, if you read into all the great moves of God, started with small groups of people who were hungry for the presence. They just wanted to see His presence. They didn't care about programs. They didn't care about you know, the next thing, the next song, the next you know, stage thing, whatever happened, you know, the lights and all that stuff. They just said, God, we just don't want to come together. We just want you to be here. Amen. You know? I have a friend of mine. Um, her name is Taryn. And I've mentioned her a couple times before. Uh, she's from South Africa, and she has this great South African accent. And you guys know Sandy Halverson. She's kind of the South African version of Sandy Halverson. <laughs> When, when she starts to pray, it's exactly the same pattern. It's just like, you know, it takes her about two breaths, and she's into this, ah! <laughs> you're kind of like, <laughs> and she, she said, one night, I went to the altar, I said, God, I am not, not going to leave here till you come down. And so I, I don't remember how long she stood there, a long time, a long time. She waited, and waited, and waited, and waited, and waited. 
she wanted his presence here. Like, I don't want your presence. I want your presence. I want your presence. I'm not leaving until your presence comes. And God came. <laughs> and she ended up on the floor and she couldn't get up. It, she said it literally took six guys to carry her out of that room. She was so heavy. <laughs> So weighted down with the presence of God. She said, I could, I could, they had to carry me back to this room. She was at a conference or something. They carried her back to a room. She couldn't move, literally. So I just, and it, it says, she said, it happened with my decision to say, God, I'm not leaving until your presence comes here today. That's what happened with Heidi Baker. She was back, if you ever read her testimony, you know, she was sick. In fact, she was dying. I mean, she was literally dying. The doctors, John, we were talking about dying. Heidi Baker was literally dying in the hospital. They said, you need to see a specialist. She said, well, I'm going to go see a specialist. And she pulled all the tubes out. <laughs> and she got up and she flew to Toronto. And she laid down on the altar at Toronto. And she says, God, I'm not leaving until you touch me. She started weeping and crying. <laughs> Randy Clark tells a story. He's trying to preach at this Toronto Revival. He says, here's this woman on the thing wailing at my feet. <laughs> but God touched her. And God healed her instantly. In that moment, God healed her. And the same thing, she said, yeah, people had to pick her up and carry her away because she was so heavy. She was driven by the presence of God. The third thing is that the church, for this to happen, really needs to be prayer-fueled. And I think that's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> we just need to be fueled by prayer, and different kinds of prayers, intercessory prayers, and declarational prayers, and, you know, all kinds of prayers that we can do. We just need to be, we need, the church needs to be praying more corporately and separately. You know, we just need that prayer. Prayer is what keeps this whole thing together. It's the glue that, that happens it together. And the fourth thing is that the church needs to release the sounds of heaven. Today, we're trying to release the sounds of heaven today. It's kind of why I picked out a little bit of what I did, but that picture of heaven, of the angels and the saints saying, glory, 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 that's the picture that's going on up there all the time. We got the practice for that today. So now when you get up there, you won't be surprised. You won't need to see the overheads because you'll already know the songs. Yeah. Right? Because it'll be holy, holy, holy as the Lord God Almighty. <laughs> see some new ones up there. I don't know. They got some new stuff up there. But the sound of heaven. We need to be filled with the sound of triumph. We need the presence of God. Or we're gonna, we need David captured that. You know, because when David, this is when David started to play. God rented the heavens and came down. I mean, it's pretty simple that when Saul was tormented, he knew it. <laughs> he knew that the only way to get calm was to have David come in. And when David came in, it wasn't just because he played really well. You know? I bet he probably didn't even sing like Josh Groban. You know? But somewhere along the line, when he started playing, the sound of heaven split, came down. And it filled that whole room and the peace of God came on there. That's what worship should be. That we should have that sound of heaven in the room. Amen. We should have that sound of heaven in our hearts. Amen. That when it happens, we just want to experience that, that touch of heaven coming down. Number five, and the last thing I bring up today is that we should be digging wells that refresh us and refresh others as a church. Digging wells of refreshment. We've kind of gotten good at the church of catering to us. And churches kind of all look like us, don't they? <laughs> we kind of go to the church that looks like us because it's comfortable to us. It's interesting that they noted that that Los Angeles Times article that Azusa Street was what? It said it was a really eclectic mix of people. A lot of blacks and some whites and 
know, all different backgrounds and all different stuff. It was all very diversity. What they were doing is they were digging wells in a church that maybe didn't look like them, but that's maybe what God wants for us to find and work with other churches, to work with people that aren't quite like us, to have a heart to, to work together with people that are maybe aren't exactly like do things the way we do. But let's get together and dig wells, and dig wells to help the thirsty, to help the weary, to dig wells that when people come in, they walk in the door, they just get refreshed. Like, wow, man, I came out of that place so, that's the, the stories you hear, there's the people walk like, man, <laughs> I'm so refreshed from being in the presence of God today. That's because people chose to dig the wells. Amen. Smith Wigglesworth said, if the spirit of God isn't moving, then let's move the spirit. <laughs> let's dig, let's dig, let's get there. Let's worship a little longer, let's worship a little deeper. Let's you know, do something else, let's, let's meet with people and help them out with where they're at. Because I think sometimes when we want people to meet with God, we get this concept that it's all going to be this great and glorious move of God. Because it's not that. It's a smile. It's just coming up to somebody and saying, hi, man. Just spending a little bit of time with them. Buying somebody a coat. Right, Tony? Somebody provides you a coat. Kyle's digging wells there. I guess what I really can kind of boil into the bottom end of this is I kind of wanted to be just encouraging to you that we seem like a small group of people. We are small. <laughs> I mean, it's 26 people. It's not a large group. Right, Hannah, it's not the same group wherever Hannah, the church that Hannah goes to. It's not substance where Stephen leads worship and they get 1,500 people of service or whatever it is there. We're a small group of people. Thirty-three people. that we're willing to dig the wells that needed to be dug, that we're looking for some kind of worship from heaven, that we're looking for relationships, that wanted to reach out, that wanted God to come down and run the heavens and be here. Fifteen people sat in a room, and ultimately ended up to be three to 350 in a room with a couple of shoeboxes, and a guy praying into the shoeboxes, and the Spirit of God fell, and the heavens were rendered, and an explosion happened off of that at some point. That's what Acts chapter 2 was about. Hallelujah. Acts 14 says a large number of people believed and a revival broke out. So I say, let's band together, believe together, and go rock the city together. We can do that. 26 of us can do that. It's not impossible. Amen? You stand with me? My reminder just popped up on my iPad that there's potluck today. So I must be trying to tell me that I'm supposed to be done or something. I don't know. <laughs> a strange reminder. <laughs> Lord, we just pray together here. There's just there's a small group of us, God. 26 people here. Like bigger than 15 that got together in a house in the middle of Los Angeles and said, we want more, God. We want something deeper, something more than what we experienced. We want the presence of God to be here. We want to experience signs and wonders, and we want to experience what they had in the book of Acts. Those people came hungry, and we listened to their cries, and we said, rend the heavens and come down. And we came and we met with them where they were at. They were humble people, 
They weren't great businessmen of the time. They weren't entrepreneurs. They weren't business owners. They were just simple people. Wanted more. They just weren't satisfied with what they had been experiencing. When you came down, your spirit spoke. The waters moved. <laughs> the fires burned. And we see these hundreds of millions of lives transformed because of that one moment in time that you came and touched the earth. Now we cry out for you to come and touch this earth again. We cry out that you come and just rend the heavens and come down and meet us here. Lord, we just pray for your Holy Spirit to touch our hearts. Lord, we pray for tonight for this revive service, God. God, there's going to be a couple of hundred people, 300 people gathered together in the encounter praying and worshiping you tonight, God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That you would touch that kind of meeting and that it would be just an explosion of, of Pentecost all over again. That your Holy Spirit's fire would come and consume hearts. That there would be lives changed. There would be people who would come to Christ tonight because of this service, Lord. But that there would be ties that would be strengthened and bonds that would be strengthened. And that your Spirit would cut loose in the city of Duluth and prepare Spirit in our lives, less of us and more of you. Pray for all the churches meeting together this morning, Lord, our people gathered and to come together to worship you and to hear from you and to be a part of what you're doing. I just pray you pour your spirit out in these churches all around the city today, Lord. Christians that need to be encouraged, encourage them today, God. The sick that need to be healed, heal today, Lord God. The homeless that need a home, God, you would just work that out, God. Homeless children that need to be fed, feed them today. Move on the hearts of men that represent you in this city today, Lord. But we don't want to just pray and say, look down from heaven. We want to cry out and say, God, rend the heavens and come down and burn upon this earth. Quake the earth, shake the earth, God. I want to pray without. Go ahead and pray. We'll pray for a couple minutes. Here.